ability of mine you know, to present to you a joyful message. And, and also since I, I think I failed to put the word joy in my sermon title, so I'll just put a smiling face there, uh, down there. And uh, just to ensure I won't deviate from my uh, theme, the, the Advent theme. You know, we just sang the song, Joy to the World, earlier. And I think no one would be surprised to know that this song, Joy to the World, is the most popular and most published Christmas hymn in North America. And this is according to the omniscient, all-knowing Wikipedia. But the song, Joy to the World, is also a classic example of unintentionality, if that's such a word. I wonder if you know that Joy to the World is actually not a Christmas song. It's written by Isaac Watts, who was a Puritan, a Puritan Christian, and Puritans do not celebrate Christmas. And in fact, in, in 1647, about 20 years before Isaac Watts was born uh, in UK, and UK was then ruled by a Puritan government. And they actually banned the celebration of Christmas during that time. So when Isaac Watts wrote the hymn, Joy to the World, he wasn't thinking about Christmas at all. The song was based on Psalm 98 in anticipation of Christ's glorious return, a.k.a. his second coming. So the funny thing is that this song, written by a lyricist who did not celebrate Christmas, had become the most popular Christmas song. I really wonder how Mr. Watts would feel if he knew what the world had done to his song. And so, so as I said, this song, Joy to the World, being the most popular Christmas song, is a classic example of unintentionality. But Christmas itself is the opposite. The, op- the, the happening of Christmas is totally intentional. It's meant to happen. It's no random act. It's not a plan B of God. It's not even supposed to surprise us. Christmas, the coming of Messiah or Christ, as a baby, was fully foretold or prophesied centuries before it actually happened. It's always been God's intention to send His Son to the world to save us. And that's what the name Jesus or its Hebrew version Joshua actually means. God saves. But if we are to be saved, it has to be from someone. And of course, from the New Testament, we, we, we know that Christ came to save us from sin. But if we go back to the earlier days in the Old Testament, When God gave the prophecy of Messiah to his people, the most prominent word to describe what the people were being saved from is actually the word darkness. And symbolically, the word darkness is a descriptive form of the word sin or evil or or, or, or ignorance. And it it represents a horror or doom. And this is why light, okay, darkness, right? So this is why light 
It's such an important element in Christmas. You see lights you know, being lit up. And, 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 and Christmas is basically the season of light. Now when you see Christmas light being lit up, it means Christmas is coming. Like this is St. Paul's Hospital and, and, and its famous Christmas light in front of it. But in the earlier days in mainland Europe, when light or electricity was not even invented or, or was not available, people had a tradition to do this. To light a candle in front of the windows during the night in December. And this tradition was for to show hospitality to weary travelers who were journeying back home for Christmas. And hospitality was important because it was what Jesus did not get when he first came to the world. Also, light is, uh, is an important element for Christmas because December is the darkest month of the year. You know, this coming Wednesday is what we call the winter solstice, and at least for the, for the north, northern hemisphere, in which we will have the shortest day and the longest night. So Christmas is the season of light, which is in contrast to our season of darkness in winter. The darker the stronger desire for light that we might have. We look forward each year to this season of light because our world is still in darkness. As John said in 2,000 years ago, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And since creation in Genesis 1, light and darkness have always been in opposition to each other. And this opposition was at its peak when the prophecy of Messiah was given to God's people about 800 years before Jesus was born. At that time, it was quite gloomy in the kingdom of Judah. Now let's take a look of a sample of what was it like then in the kingdom of Judah, which is recorded in the book of Isaiah, chapter 8, 19 to 9, 7. And today, Charlotte is going to read this passage to us. Thank you, Charlotte. When someone tells you, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward, will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as soldiers rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning as 
uh, will be the fuel of the fire for fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Thank you. Let us all pray together. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for the word that you have prophesied through your prophet Isaiah. And we ask that your spirit today will guide us to understand and to fully grasp the word, the meaning, and also the fulfillment like never before. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 7 to 9, three chapters, uh, is a unified section. But in all 68 verses in these three chapters, we probably are familiar with only two of those, which are both typical Christmas verses. And it means that you don't really get to see them from January to November. The first one is 7.14, which says, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. And the second one is the one we just read, 9.6, and it says, For to us a child is born, to us a child a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, etc., but unfortunately, we, we are quite unfamiliar with the background of these verses. What was the context when they were set in the first place? Why they appear 800 years before Jesus was born? And more importantly, why did these verses, or what did these verses have to do with the kingdom of Judah in Isaiah's time? I mean, if we just think that these verses are only Christmas verses, then we will miss some of the core messages that can only be found in this original setting. So in Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah received his first task since he was called to be Yahweh's prophet in chapter 6. And his first job was to speak to no other but the newly crowned king of Judah, Ahaz. And Ahaz was a perfect example of a person whose heart was closed, ears were dull, and eyes were closed. So when the king was bad, everything else was bad too. But to be fair to Ahaz, it was not an easy time to be the ruler of Judah, let alone being the rookie on the throne. And because as he ascended to kingship, he had to deal with a daunting military crisis. I don't know if you can see it, but Judah is down here, the purple one. He, the kingdom of Judah is actually facing attack from two nations in the north. This one, the green one, which is uh, the once brotherly Israel, and also from here, the yellow one, Aram, which is now Syria. They were attacking Judah. And you see, Jerusalem is right here, near the border, right? So this is where Ahaz lives, and, 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 and it's a very dangerous situation. So, so Ahaz just freaked out. And he decided 
with his so-called common sense or political wisdom to seek rescue from the even stronger and even more evil nation, Assyria, which is further on the top. And in the ancient world, when one nation seeks rescue from another, one common condition is to pledge their God as your God. So, in order to get help from Assyria, Judah has to first betray Yahweh. So, in order to prevent Ahaz from teaming up with the wrong partner and entering an even deeper darkness, Yahweh spoke to Ahaz through prophet Isaiah. And God said, and Isaiah says to God, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. God, through Isaiah, told Ahaz to ask for any sign he can imagine. He could ask for anything as a sign for him to put faith in God instead of Assyria. But Ahaz refused. He said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Wow, what a spiritual answer, right? Ahaz must have been a long-time churchgoer who knew how to act spiritually when in fact he is nothing but. I mean, no matter what he said, he was saying no to God. He was refusing to ask for a sign which can guide him to put faith in Yahweh. It's not that he did not need a sign or he did not want a sign. The reality was that he did not want God. He never considered putting trust in God an option. There's always a danger when you ask God for a sign. I don't know if you have done it before, but there's always a danger. It's because when God follows through and shows you exactly what you ask for, then you have no choice but to put faith on him and obey his will. Ahaz was not prepared to do that. So he refused to ask for a sign. Now this is the first symptom of darkness, which is unbelief in God, and rather the reliance on power and strength of men. Well, the next symptom would appear when the available resources were not enough to fix the problem of is that when people would start to tap into the power of the supernatural or the mystical world. That's exactly what happened in Isaiah's time. It says, when someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists, and pastor is not in this category, who whisper and mutter, should not the people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Now, mediums, spiritists, sorcerers, Dr. Strange, and the like, were strictly prohibited in the Mosaic Law and are defined as a kind of abomination, which is the worst category of offenses. And look at how Isaiah described the way the mediums and, and spiritists speak. They whisper and mutter, and they just mumble. It's ironic that when the words of God was proclaimed loud and clear, no one was paying attention. But on the contrary, the whisper, the mumble of those 
and it caught the attention of the people. So now we pastors know that you know, when, when you guys do not pay attention when we preach loud and clear, we just change it to mumbling next time. And, and seeking blessings from the mystical world is a form of darkness. It's bad because it, this is an attempt that recognizes that there is a spiritual world, but then the Lord who can bestow blessings is not God. Any form of superstition goes against pure faith on God. Superstition assumes that something, something else, other than God, can increase our blessings or avoid misfortune. Superstition intrinsically assumes that God is not sovereign. God is not all-powerful. God is not the only God. Even Christians could be superstitious too, can we? Like, like, you know, we may be obsessed with certain numbers, like it's Chinese, right? you know, number eight, right? And we would do anything, any cost, to avoid the number four, right? But believing in certain rituals or, or feng shui, so, so these are bad. But I mean, you don't need to go, try to go out and prove yourself that you're not superstitious by getting a license plate of four, 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 four. I mean, that's not necessary. But when even being superstitious cannot solve the problem of the world, the next symptom of darkness would likely appear, which is rage and fury. In Isaiah 8, 20 to 20, 21, says this, Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no, right, no, no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land, when they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward, will curse the king and their God. You know, when we have no God's word in us, and when the problems that we have cannot be fixed with our resources, then it's easy for us to feel insecure and then become agitated. The people in Isaiah's time try to put blame on anyone for their own problems. They blame their kings, which can be legitimate, ahas, right? But they also blame God, Yahweh, whom they have refused to trust in the first place. And if rage and anger are the opposite of joy, and if joy is a characteristic of light, then rage and anger are definitely characteristics of darkness. And in this situation, Isaiah he gave a final description to conclude this dark state of his community. In the last verse, verse in chapter 8, 22, he said, Then they, almost like everyone in the land, will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. What's going on here? These people are looking toward the earth and to seek our human resources to fix their world. They are looking to their experts, their superpowers, or even the mystics for solutions. Well, they might acknowledge that their world was dark, but they thought they can 
spiritual darkness themselves outside of God, Yahweh. But at the end, they see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Well, doesn't our world look not much different? Isn't our world making the same claim today? We focus so much on, on self-help or DIY, as if we can solve any problems as long as we can get Wi-Fi access. People would look to experts, to governments, to military, to markets, to knowledge, and to technology to try to make the world brighter or at least less dark. But have we made any progress in our pursuit of brightness outside of God? When people are getting richer, the poor is getting poorer. When telecommunication technology is growing exponentially, interpersonal relationship is, on the other hand, getting more distant. When education is increasing across generations, the rage and anger in the society are, on the other hand, not getting less. When our military has advanced so much in recent history, terrorism has, on the other hand, made our society more vulnerable. When more and more experts exist, our society is filled with even more crooked principles. So Christmas, the season of light, is the most unsentimental, realistic way of looking at life. They will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and fearful gloom. A line set 2,800 years ago can still accurately describe our society today. But as dark as it has presented, there is still hope for joy because there is still light. God, through his prophet Isaiah, has been giving his people signs of throughout these three chapters of prophecy. And very interestingly, God has employed a very special and unique way to present these prophecies of light. God has used four children, or, or even babies, to make known His will and His plan. And thus, here comes today's title, The Four Prophetic Babies. We might be only familiar with two of the four babies in these three chapters. Specifically, we probably know the second one, who is called Emmanuel, and the fourth one, who is titled Wonderful Counselor or Mighty God, etc. I mean, it's pretty awesome, right? The baby has titles. We know, we know them as we have heard of these verses in Christmas, in Christmas only, almost. However, we have no idea who the first and the third babies are. We may not even know that they actually existed. But these four kids represent a single coherent message of Yahweh to his people in Judah back in Isaiah's time. Okay, the first sign. The first sign of light happened in Isaiah 7, 3. That's the beginning of this section. There it says that when Isaiah was going to see King Ahaz, God specifically ordered him to bring his son along. You know, probably he's very small, or even a baby at that time. That's unimaginably strange. I mean, imagine you go to sea, or, or more precisely, you go 
confronts the king and you have to carry your baby with you. That's really odd. I mean, like your wife has gone shopping and the nursery is full. No one is babysitting your kid. You have to bring it to see the king. It's really awkward that you have to carry your baby to approach a king. And what's more special about this kid was that the Bible specifically recorded his name. No random act here. His name, Shia Yashub, literally means the return of a remnant. Isaiah bringing his son, whose name is the return of a remnant, to see the king. And this is itself a prophetic act to King Ahaz. Remnant is a technical term in the Bible, which refers to a small group of survivors or a small group of chosen elects. The term remnant, if serves as a warning, means that most of the people will have to face judgment and be condemned. However, this term also serves as a promise. It can mean that even all people were evil and against God, God would still graciously save a small group of them in order to remain faithful to his covenant with his people. So to Ahaz, Isaiah baby boy, it's a warning. But to Isaiah, his son Shir Yashub serves as a light in the darkness. That God will never forget his covenant with his people. And after the first baby, it comes the second one, which is probably the most well-known, but also the most misunderstood baby in the Isaiah account. When King Ahaz refused to ask God a sign, God just ignored him and gave him a sign anyway. In 7.14, it says that, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel, meaning God with us. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Well, this baby is the most misunderstood one because almost everyone in this verse will think that this is, you know, baby Jesus. But he is not. This is a baby born in the palace Maybe from a maid in the palace or some some girl in the palace who just got married. The term virgin actually means young girl here. Isaiah told King Ahaz that a baby will be born very soon in his palace. He probably knows who that girl is. And his name, this little baby boy, will be named Emmanuel, meaning God with us. The context here says that when this baby was still very young, before he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, probably before two years old, or maybe 15 in our generation, 25 maybe, the problem facing a harsh caused by Israel and Aram would disappear. So within about two years, the problem will be gone. No more threat. So this baby, born in the time of Ahaz and Isaiah, served as the second prophetic sign that Ahaz can trust Yahweh to deal with his crisis. This baby, Emmanuel, is not Jesus. 
he foretold Jesus. Well, Jesus is not named Emmanuel. Jesus is called Jesus. You never heard Jesus introduce himself or call himself, hey, my name is Emmanuel. Jesus would not go to a restaurant and say, table for 13 under Emmanuel. Never happened. Jesus is the fulfillment of Emmanuel. Christmas is the fulfillment of this second baby foretold 800 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Okay, so if the first baby served as a warning, then this second baby must serve as a promise. Right? Emmanuel, God with us. That God is with Ahaz and his nation. He doesn't need Assyria. But Ahaz might feel that, hey, just a couple of babies, these are not strong enough signs. But no problem. To God, Yahweh, you can ask as many babies as you can. He'll just give more signs. So he'll hence another baby. The third baby was mentioned just about 15 verses later. In 8.3, it says, And I went to uh, the prophetess, which is his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahashalah Hasbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus, which is Aram, and the spoil of Samaria, which is Israel, will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So now you understand why no one ever knows this third baby. I mean, who can pronounce his name and remember his name? Mahashalahasbaz. Okay, but wait until you, you know the meaning of this name. It means, oh boy, hurry to the spoil and make haste to the prey. Well, there are two issues with his name. First, if you don't realize it already, it's a sentence. Now imagine that you have a name that is a sentence. Like if someone asks you, what's your name? You go, oh, lawn mowing is a really tiring thing. <laughs> and then he goes, well, I asked you, what's your name? You go, oh, lawn mowing is a really tiring thing. Oh, you see how many friends this baby is going to make in his life. Also, the meaning of his name is, is really violent. It's like, what's your name? I'll beat you up. Well, this name certainly sounds scary, as it sounds like a giant. But it's not meant to scare the king of Ahaz, because the judgment that this name implies was not to Judah, but to the two nations that was attacking Judah, namely Israel and Aram. So again, just like the second baby, before the third baby knows how to cry daddy or mommy, which is, I don't know how old that would be, two, one, the, king, the two kings attacking Judah would give up because they have their own troubles to deal with. So after three babies, Shia, Yashub, Emmanuel, and this, whatever name it is, Ahaz should be confident enough to put trust in Yahweh, right? Don't you think so? I mean, three babies in only two chapters. The nation should all come back to Yahweh and follow His will, right? No. 
Unfortunately, no. Whether it's King Ahaz at the top or the general population down there, still no one saw God Yahweh as a source of salvation. They still prefer to count on the evil Assyria to save them. So they look, they will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and fearful gloom. The world of Judah was still dark, even though God kept shining light on them through babies number one and number three. So what, when, when everyone still ignored God and his prophet, what did God decide to do? Did he think that, okay, enough is enough. So it just leave his people to darkness. But no, that's not what the God of faithfulness would do. When everyone was still betraying him, he decided to introduce the fourth baby. In chapter 9, God gave Judah a prophecy of reversal, a message of light shining through darkness. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Why? What happened? Why these people of darkness would suddenly see light? What happened? Or or who made that happen? Why such reversal? Well, the reason is Christmas. says in verse 6, for, what's an effect thing? Why the people all of a sudden can see light? For, to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Well, this name is even more unique, right? It's all titles. It's like calling your son CEO. Anyway, this fourth page, Isaiah the 7 to 9, this fourth, these three chapters, this baby is the only one among, among the four which was not born in Isaiah in a harsh time. This baby was a prophecy back then. And the kingdom of Judah would have to wait for about 800 years later for this prophecy to be fulfilled in Bethlehem, in a manger, a baby born to Mary. When all prophecies were ignored, instead of leaving his people to darkness, God sent his son as the ultimate light. And see how this baby was described. He was not born from us. He was born to us and given to us. This baby is a gift given to us freely by our Heavenly Father because we have no way, we have no resources to overcome darkness by ourselves. You know, not all gifts are welcome. I don't know if you have received gifts that you, you really want that it never actually happened. Uh, like some gifts, by its nature, make us swallow our pride. Imagine, like you sisters, opening a Christmas gift from a friend, and it's a dieting bowl. Or, or you brothers, opening a Christmas gift, and it's a book titled, Overcoming Selfishness. I mean, these are hard gifts to receive. Right? Because to do so is to admit that we have flaws. 
We need help. But there has never been a gift offered to us that make us swallow our pride to the depth that a gift, the gift of Jesus Christ requires us to do. Christmas means that we are lost. We are unable to save our, ourselves. That nothing less than the depth of this fourth baby, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, could save us. And Jesus, in the book of Revelation, he called himself the bright morning. Why morning? Why can't he just call himself a bright star? Right? Well, it's because the night before daybreak is the darkest. And Jesus is the light in the darkest sky. Christmas is the season of light. And as we celebrate it, we need to be told and again, that it's all about Jesus. As we have the mandate, we have the responsibility and also the privilege to witness the light of Jesus to the world. And this is what we have to do this year and every year. Let us all pray together. Father God, we give thanks to you for Jesus. He's such a wonderful gift. And, and we might not even realize how much we need him. So we pray that your spirit would guide us and help us. We pray that the spirit would lead us to overcome our own pride and ego. And in this Christmas season, that we will take this gift of life humbly, seriously, and responsibly. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.